2: Hey, everyone. It's Jeremy Scheinwald, uh, founder of the Mission Driven Group and host of the Venture for America Smart People Should Build Things podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to play favors on the show. I love all of our podcast guests, but this one was really a lot of fun to do. We have Olga Vitasheva on the show. Um, she's the founder of ShopTeeks, and her story basically is the American dream. She she moved here at the age of seventeen from Kyrgyzstan, uh, found herself uh, found her way to Wellesley College, then to Goldman Sachs, uh, where she was an incredibly hard such a hard such a hardworking banker that her friends got her a pillow for Christmas as a joke. Uh, then she went to Harvard Business School, and as a Harvard Business School student uh, with many student loans, she uh, spent her last few bucks on getting ShopTeeks off. The 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 ground and it's become a raging success. She's brought, um, Thousands of small boutiques online, and uh, enabled them to compete with the big boys, which in and of itself is, is kind of a kind of a uh, an American dream type story as well, helping out the little guy. Um, she's got a, a wonderful sense of humor and uh, and a lot of charisma and energy, and um, I just so enjoyed uh, speaking with her today. So please enjoy the show, and if you are enjoying the show and you're a regular listener, please go to um, go to iTunes and review our show. Uh, it'll enable us to keep on going. And- and um, to get some great sponsors and to make sure that, um, that we uh, grow our listenership and, and, uh, and, and, and renew the purpose of the podcast. So um, so please do that uh, right now, and then press play and listen to Olga Videsheba. Thanks so much.
0: Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast.
2: Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or, even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories.
0: This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast.
2: Well, Olga, thanks so much for for being here today and for sharing uh, for uh, preliminary. Thank you for sharing your story with us.
3: Thank you for having me, and really excited.
2: Yeah, well, I'm so we, as we we're talking like before we started, I I am I'm you know it's, you're not going to f- hear it in my speech, or maybe you will. Maybe I have the occasional Canadian uh, you know long O or something like about something like that. But I too am a, am a, I'm a, I'm an immigrant to this country, and I love immigrant success stories, and um, yours is certainly one of them. You know, you you immigrated I think when you were 17. Yep. Um, from Kyrgyzstan, which is like sandwiched between China and Kazakhstan, I
3: Correct. think. Correct. You did your okay. homework. I've
2: always been a. I, when I was a little kid, I was a little like a nerd with the globe and would would study all the countries. So. That's
3: amazing. Maybe afterwards you can show me where Kyrgyzstan is on the map. I can do it. I okay. can do it.
2: <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> uh, what was it. First of all, what was it like growing up in Kyrgyzstan? And, you know. And and tell me about the tr- the transition. I could, did you move to Santa Fe? I'm, I was you know you never know the reliability of online research, but I, I think you moved to Santa Fe. Uh,
3: Los Alamos, okay, um, which was about it's about forty five minutes from Santa Fe, uh, which is even tinier. It's like fifteen minutes walk from one side to another, where the Los Alamos National Lab is. Uh, so tiny city, but there's a lot of Russians actually. Okay. So one of the reasons I wanted to move out of Los Alamos quickly is otherwise I would never learn English because everybody just spoke Russian because so many scientists were there.
2: How was your English um, when you moved?
3: I didn't speak any English. Not a word. Um, wow. Probably a couple of words. I just couldn't really understand anybody because uh, we tend to speak by combining words. So it's not like I say I go to school. I say right. I go to school, <laughs> right? And so I was like, what are they saying? Even the words that I knew. Uh, but yeah, growing up in Kyrgyzstan was amazing because. You know, I think that you got to run around a lot and there wasn't as much structure. So I had to entertain myself all day, every day. I loved school. All summer, I couldn't wait for school to start because all my friends were there. And and so I think it really gave me kind of ability to learn who I am from pretty young age because, you know, you got to hang out and you didn't have video games or... Cell phones or anything like that. So, it's it was an amazing at uh, bringing uh, a lot of nature. It's um, you know surrounded by mountains. So got to hang out by the lake and then the mountains. So just a fantastic way to grow up. Uh, very different culturally, obviously, and I think it's. Um, an interesting place for a woman to grow up because you don't get to have as much opportunity unless you're from a wealthy family or, um, I don't even know, born into a wealthy family or or married into a wealthy family. So I think that having that opportunity in America and moving here, and I went to Wellesley College, which was all women's college, uh, and seeing women, and their slogan was women who will make a difference in the world, kind of being... uh, Having that empowerment was so, so uh, important to me to really who I am today and, and feeling like I could achieve something and start a business or or be somebody in America.
2: And so you know, like I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to picture like day one here. You move with, I believe your your grandmother as well.
3: My mom. Your so mom. Um, my mom was musician. Okay. She's an incredibly talented pianist, and she was invited to play piano in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and so my mom moved uh, to America two years before. I I moved so I was actually coming to home in a sense and my sister moved a year later when my mom moved she couldn't bring us because the type of visa that she had she couldn't bring her kids and so by the time that we were able to move you know we one missed our mom we haven't seen her for two years Uh, but also my sister and my mom were already here so I remember going to a restaurant with her and we were speaking to somebody and I would be like my telling my sister who is seven years younger what are they saying, like translated for me. So I was lucky because I had a little translator uh, in my sister, uh, so it was really fun.
2: Just, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, this is my, my own pet topic, but I, I'm, I'm so enamored with it. Like what was, it? Did, did, did you, did they just tell you one day that you could move? Like how did you, how did, tell, describe finding out that you were moving?
3: Um, so I came just to visit my mom. I was seventeen. I was already in the university in Russia, and it was a winter break. I moved here like january twenty third i think two thousand one um no actually not two thousand three but regardless, I was literally in um Los Alamos, when I landed in LA, actually, that's w- probably why I love California so much still. <laughs> but I um, was just visiting my mom, and then when I got here, my mom was like, do you wanna stay? And I would think about Russia, and you know, Kyrgyzstan, it would be like this black cloud, it was freezing, I had like coats on, <laughs> and then I landed in LA, and everybody's like, in shorts, in right. January. It was like, oh my God, what is this place? Um, and I said, yes, absolutely, I wanna, I wanna stay. Um, and because I was under 18, I was able to stay under my mom's status and and kind of be a kid you know and then apply to schools and do all that stuff. So
2: because you were already in school, that mean you could skip all the SAT stress that everyone had? Or did you have to, to go I had to through? do
3: TOEFL, which toyful was terrible because I didn't speak English. Right. Uh, so I started uh, by waitressing at a Japanese restaurant. So I actually learned English at a Japanese restaurant, um, waitressing. And it was so stressful. The first word I learned in English was cucumber. And I'll never forget, because everybody was ordering this cucumber sushi. And I was like, what are they talking about? Uh, it was really stressful. It was hard. You know, I would come home. I would cry because I couldn't understand I would write down in Russian what they were saying and then would repeat what they were saying to the kitchen because essentially I was making the same sound so the kitchen could understand uh, what I was saying you know but then slowly you start kind of comprehending it because you're so immersed in it
2: so how many how many people do you have working for you now?
3: Uh, we have forty-five people. Okay,
2: I like. I don't want to get political on this, but we got uh, you know a, a, a Kurgak Im- uh, immigrant and a Canadian immigrant who together <laughs> employ like seventy-five people. You know, Amazing. we gotta we gotta depoliticize immigration <laughs> in, the, in the in the debates. Uh, okay, we can we can edit that out from the show if we're getting too political here. The uh, okay. So I'm cu- I'm curious here how you um, like. I'm, I'm guessing you had no idea what Wellesley College was. Um, so how did you determine that you were going to go there? Uh, you know, an all women's college in Massachusetts. You're uh, you're living living in Santa Fe? Um,
3: um, I was already actually in Boston. Um, okay. And when I stepped into Wellesley, I just knew. So it was kind of a the feeling. I, I Sometimes you have to trust your gut. And I just felt that was a school for me. At the time, I also had a contract to kind of join a modeling agency in New York. So there was a choice for me whether to go to school or to, to do modeling full time. So I said, if I don't get into Wellesley, I'm just going to pursue modeling. Um, And I got into Wellesley and it was a dream school and it made me who I am and I have so much um, just respect for how they develop their students. And I was so challenged every day of the the school year Um, and I loved every second of it.
2: I guess the same question for Goldman Sachs. Like, had you it, Did you even have a conception of Goldman Sachs, what it was, like the, you know, the powerhouse <laughs> brand that it was when you were 17 years old moving here?
3: Uh, no, I didn't know what Goldman Sachs was um, until I literally was in New York interviewing. So um, <laughs> it was quite embarrassing, I guess, now in the hindsight. But I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what investment banking was. Um, I feel very lucky because they we were interviewing at the Balsley, And I was interviewing for summer internships. Um, and I applied to all the jobs that were on our job board because, you know, I just moved here and I really didn't have guidance from my parents to say, oh, here's the company you should look at. So I was using really heavily kind of the help services at school for all the internships. So I applied to all those banks because they truly were the only ones that were recruiting heavily on campus. Um, and when I went to Goldman, I just knew also it was like really the right fit for me. And the summer. My internship was amazing because like I did not sleep for ten weeks, I think maybe two hours a night, but I got to talk to like CEO of this huge corporation. I would feel incredibly I was like, Who am I? I just moved here, you know, four years before that, barely speak English. And and here I am, I'm talking to somebody who built this incredible business and I was able to learn. Um, from them, and that summer was just amazing. I remember getting a phone call, and it went from our vice president to the associate to um, analyst, then to me as a summer intern. And they're like, "Oh, we are doing this deal on Monday. We, we, you guys, sorry, have to work all weekend. Get us this preparation." I was so excited. I was like, "Yes! Oh my God! I get to work on this. This is the best, you know." Um, and so I think that. It, it was just such a good fit for me and I learned tremendous amount and um from them over the two years that I Cannot imagine my life is that.
2: And, and Wellesley's like Wellesley's liberal arts. So did you have any of the skill? Like, did you take a finance class or an econ class? Like, how did you know you could do the job?
3: For the summer, I didn't. But then when I came back to school and I was given a full time offer, I took uh, accounting classes at MIT because we had a partnership with Wellesley. Um, had a partnership with MIT, and then I took some other classes on finance. So I was able to kind of prepare myself. So I think that the key is: Do you want to do it, and do you want to learn? And if you do, you can figure it out. Um, I think that they do a tremendous amount of training in the beginning as well. Um, and it's all learning from each other. You know, I had all of the friends of mine are still uh, good friends and they still in finance and I could ask them questions and figure it out. Um, it's all the ability and that natural curiosity. Do you want to learn and do you not? And that's the same thing I hire for now, right? Even if somebody doesn't have experience in doing something, can they figure it out? And do they want to figure it out? That's really the question.
2: Uh, so, I heard that I heard a rumor that uh, that some of your friends, uh, when you were at Goldman, you were working so hard that as a gift, they got you a pillow. Is that yes. true? Yes.
3: It was the first year, and I got a pillow for Christmas. It's still true. And I was so grateful. <laughs> I was sleeping on the floor of my cubicle, and now I had a pillow to sleep on. So that's great.
2: And so you went you, so you're obviously working quite hard, um, I have to assume doing well doing quite well it seems like it's within your character. Why did you decide to to move on from Goldman and go to I mean you know it seems like a pretty good choice at Harvard Business School, but what what made you think about you know next moves
3: um, so when I was working at Goldman, I was on working one of the deals where I had to do some sort of operational stuff um, in addition, like preparing them for a deal that they were working on, and so as part of that, I got to work with the management team of the company a lot, uh, thinking about how do they should they position themselves, how should they do financials. So usually at a typical investment bank, you are just advising, right? Like you advising on the merger or the financing. Uh, here, I actually got to do like the operational stuff, and I uh, realized just how much I love it because you got to actually do it and see the impact right away um and I just realized that uh for some people it's right to advise and then kind of let go I really loved it to see things through and was really upset if we did a deal or merger and I didn't get to see the implementation through oh, how did it work out did it actually happen the way we wanted it to happen um so I realized that operations had to be something that I was going to do with my life um when I was at Wells, actually I um I wrote a thesis on real estate, and I almost went into real estate development because I wanted to see like buildings built, um, and and really kind of tangible. St- thing, right? Be created. Uh, and that's why I also went into G- HBS and, and realized that advising is amazing and it's the right kind of person that needs to be able to do that. But to me, it's also about building that, building a company, building a department, building out somebody as a person and mentoring them. Um, and that's what I was missing there. And um, you know, maybe one day I'll go back to finance and advise in one way or another and I'm advising my teammates and, and people that I work with but I still wanna be able to build something and say, you know what? That sleepless nights that I took, oh now there's a company and there are forty five people that are working there and I impacting their lives and their kids' lives and their friends and all that stuff.
2: So when you went to HBS, was there any, did you, I mean, you're saying you want to be more operationally involved, but could that have been for another company? Like, were you going in saying, I want to walk out of here and I want to be an entrepreneur?
3: No, I'm not the kind of person like that, actually. So um, I think entrepreneurship was a surprise to me. Like, I wasn't the person, I was a leader, right? Like, I would organize things in my neighborhood and um, I was five years old and I organized this big, a mermaid performance, and my family (laughs) was laughing because there's 15-year-olds who were doing performance for a five-year-old. So it was quite funny, but I wasn't an entrepreneur in a sense that, you know, I had a lemonade stand when I was was a kid. Um, And so... It was a surprise to me that I went and, and did this, but I think it was driven by the fact that this didn't exist. So when I was at, um, at HBS, and I was already very passionate about boutique shopping. Every time I would travel at Goldman, I would stumble upon a local store, and I would bring something back, and people would be like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Where did you get it? I want this as well. Um, and I would give them the name of the store, and they would call the store, and they would be like, sorry, we don't ship from France to the U- U.S., or uh, we don't have a Presence, you can't see our selection, whatever. So I was already personally involved in this whole space. And at the time, so it was 2010, Google launched something called boutiques.com. And I was so passionate about the space. I was like, I'm going to go work for Google. Like, they clearly believe the market is huge. And they you know, shut down that initiative because they couldn't execute on it because Google is amazing at technology. But we're going to go and do photography and uh, sales and all the things that we are good at. you know. Um, and I realized that I had to start it because I'm just going to regret not doing it. Because I was like, OK, this has to exist. Like If you look at the space, there was already Etsy who was working with local artisans. There was already net a that was working with big brands. Why was nobody working with the small retailers? And why weren't they online, right? 40% of transactions ha- happen offline, happen at small stores. So it's a huge market, but why was nobody doing it? You know, and it kind of like kept bugging me. And so as a senior project, my second year project at the GBS, I just wanted to study it. And by the end of the project, uh, by the end of the year, um, I tried to convince myself the whole year not to do it, but I just realized how big the market was, and I was like, "Okay, I will never stumble upon another market that's so big, growing so fast, um, that I can actually understand and make impact in." You know, and so it was kind of a no-brainer at the time. I had to explore it, and I had to see what's up.
2: You just answered a question I had because I so I watched the I watched you on the on the Y combinator um, female. Founders Conference video that's online. Mm-hmm. It's it's awesome to watch. I anyone who's 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 interested, you definitely listening should definitely check it out. Um, but you talk about how you spoke to eight hundred boutiques mm-hmm. before you even. Um, you know before you um, started you know well here's the quote that, that was the most helpful thing in starting and running shoptiques um, and I was wondering if you did that did that for credit but I mean 800 boutiques and it's, I mean it sounded like you weren't exaggerating why like <laughs> first of all why, like, why not stop at 300 or 400 like well, what number were you were you going for and 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 what were those things that, that you learned from them
3: totally um, so it's part of this was part of um, business Plunk Competition. So it's at HBS, and I don't think they do that anymore. I think they restructured the program. But um, you could apply to have a to be part of business plan competition, and they gave you a little stipend to even kind of compensate for your expenses studying for that, um, studying the market or studying your idea. So, uh, you know, I was writing my um, whatever business plan with a guy No Noam, Noam Wasserman, who is fantastic, who wrote a book called Founder's Dilemma. He's awesome, and um, I just wanted. I was curious, like. The thing at the end of the day, that what I think that I encourage every entrepreneur who's starting a business, be curious about your business and really be passionate about what you do. I was also shopping as much as I was talking to those people. You know what I mean? Like I'm a girl who loved to discover boutiques and love to discover cultures through that local shopping, right? Um, so that was, really interesting to me to remember, right? Every store I used to go to would be like buying something. I'm like, no, I'm here to talk to the owner, not to buy this thing. But um, I was really curious organically, naturally, like, why don't they do this, right? It just seemed so wrong. why didn't I stop at 300? I don't know because Norm probably kept pushing me like to figure it out, and there was, you know, uh, wasn't distinct things that I was seeing, and I wanted to make sure I did. And also, once I reached out to a bunch of people, and they just kept wanting to talk to me, it seemed kind of wrong to be canceling interviews right. because <laughs> I reached a certain number, you know. Right. Um, I just did a bunch of research, and I literally blasted to people and said, "Hey, like we're thinking about doing this. Um, tell me what you think." You know, we tested something called Week, Uh, to see if people even shop at boutiques during my um, second year because I wanted to figure out if people cared about boutique shopping or was it just me a weirdo you know in Boston Um, so it was you know definitely kind of organically happened that I wanted to figure it out and also it was a huge decision for me you know I paid for my undergrad myself then I was a Goldman and then I was paying for my uh, HBS degree, right? So all expensive, expensive propositions. So if I was gonna go um, and really dedicate my time to building out this idea. I really wanted to be very, very sure that this is gonna be a multi-billion dollar business and that I can build it myself and that there's demand from the stores that they wanted this product. They could've told me, no, we don't wanna be online, this is a small local business, right? But they all wanted to be online, they just didn't know how. And the common themes were, how do I photograph the items? Um, a store asked me if they should hire Giselle. I was like, I'm sorry, you probably cannot afford her. Uh, but you know, that was kind of important to me that we incorporated photography into this, right? So we helped them with uh, photographing of the items because a lot of them had never been photographed. So without ShopTix photographing those products, they would never be online. Um, and then they couldn't really figure out how to build a website. Okay, let's. That makes sense. If we can aggregate engineers and data people across, serving all the stores, then we can actually hire incredible people and serve each one of them individually really well. Um, so, they were the research that I needed to get comfortable around the fact that, yes, this is a huge idea, and not only do they want it, they need it, and they know that they need it.
2: Right.
0: Play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is smart people should build things, the Venture for America podcast.
2: You graduate from HBS and you invest, you know, your remaining funds in in uh, in, a, in a beta site, and and then you joined Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think let me get this right: you were the the first. Sole founder with a non-technical background. Give me, give yeah, me, give me the, give me the terminology. It. Is yeah, that it? Yeah. Yep, okay, you got we're it. Sole right. founder with a non-technical background, <laughs> um, but you, you had, you had a wait. I, I, let me get my my facts right. You had a wait list of people who were trying to, trying to um, make purchase. On the side, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a little confused here. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, so I so. launched
3: a private beta site. So um, I hired this engineers out of Indonesia. Um, right. And they build this prototype, essentially, just to start seeing, right? Like, are customers interested in this, or was this just the boutiques who really care about building this, right? And so um, we launched the site, and Women's Wear Daily covered the launch. It was. I think October 2nd, 2011. Um, And they covered the story. And we got all those people on the wait list. And they wanted to shop and we got some in. Um, At the time, it was like super awesome to do invite a friend or whatever. I had to limit the number of friends they could invite. Because to me, you know, if they invited too many people, we just didn't have enough supply because I only had 25 stores on the platform. Um, And that's, Literally, like, the day I was launching private beta um, was the day the deadline for my Combinator application. Okay. And the guys who were sitting behind me at um, this co-working space in Union Square, they were like, you have to apply to this. We did it, and it's amazing. And so they encouraged me to apply, and I applied, and I prepared my application really quickly because there was no time for me to even research the probability of getting in or anything like that and so i feel very fortunate been so what do
2: you what do you think they? Saw? i mean you had all this momentum so it's clear what they saw in you but wh- like why did you why did you feel like hey I, I mean, i've got something going, i've incubated it myself why do i need to go to, to to y combinator at this point
3: uh it was pretty clear to me that technology is going to be the Key part of this business. Um, I had absolutely no network or experience running a technology business, and they had plenty of experience by the time they already funded Airbnb, Dropbox, Reddit. So um, clearly had great success stories. Also the partners, people who build Gmail and, you know, um, all sorts of businesses, right. And so I really wanted to make sure that I surround myself with the best advisors. They were also giving me $18,000. And I was so broke that I just (laughs) wanted, you know, to be able to have some sort of funds to um, start hiring people and and do things like that. Um, But it just felt like the right fit. And once I interviewed with them, they were just so smart. It was an amazing feeling to be able to like, Argue, there's like a five minute interview, and I had an argument um, with one of the partners, which I did not remember, but um, you know, my uh, Paul Graham told me recently that <laughs> I had an argument with them, and they had videos of that still, apparently. But like arguing about the validity of your business or what you want to do, um, that's how you get to the best ideas, and if you can talk about your business to Amazing smart minds, and they'll push you to be better, and they'll push you to think about your business in a, in a much better way.
2: So, I mean, there's a reason why you're one of the sole, like one of the only sole founders they've ever accepted, which is because a lot of entrepreneurs prefer to see, or a lot of incubators and, and investors prefer to see co-founders because they depend on each other. I'm a sole founder myself, so I've got a bias. Amazing. <laughs> <Main laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, why? Like, did, did, were you sitting around thinking like, "Hey, I need a"? Uh, were you ever thinking like, mm, "This would be better if I had a partner in this business"? It was always just like me right. against the world.
3: Um it's interesting, I think that if you find the right person, right, if you have a best friend you grew up with and you 've gone through hard things together, and here you guys are, despite all of that, and you're thinking about this idea, and both of you are passionate about it, absolutely. I think it's who your partner is that's tremendously important i haven't met the person that I was um, you know, able to click with really well. I think I'm a hard person to be, you know, working for and with and um you know, so <laughs> we're gonna come back to that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you know, and, and so and everybody knows Paul Graham told me that. Okay. And so knowing kind of your shortcomings is really important and, and the type of people that you want to partner with is, is also really important. I had the business skills, right? So the the technical person that could have joined would have been an amazing addition. Um, and I tried to do that. I tried to find people who would be amazing, but I think that bringing somebody in, once your idea is already there, it's very different feeling than somebody who started with you from nothing, um, rather than bringing them in when there's already money raised and it's easier, right? Because they don't have that drive of like working 24 seven because, you know, you just have to survive and you just have to succeed. Um, They're just coming into the idea. And they also don't share that passion for that idea, right? Like I would have loved to bring somebody, uh, like a tech co-founder who was a woman who was so passionate about boutique shopping, right? But I didn't meet anybody like that. So I think at some point you have to say, I'm going to cut my losses short. I haven't found that kind of person. Let me focus on the business. Because my team is my co-founders. I have the most amazing people working with me who every single day so passionate about what we do, they push me to think about other things that I've never thought that I should be thinking about, you know And so it's all titles, right The co-founder is just a title. Um, my whole team, are my co-founders and they want to be better and they want me to be better and they want the business to succeed. It's just a co-founder is somebody who puts the business above their own needs and desires and you can hire people like that who will believe in your vision and your mission.
2: So when you say putting it above your your own needs and desires for Christmas, did you get like five pillows this year?
3: Uh, No. (laughs) Um, Are you
2: there all the time?
3: I'm there all the time, but also once Christmas hits. It's like dead season for us, so we actually nobody is allowed to come to the office for that two weeks because it's really dead. And mm. if it's dead, we work so hard right. that we usually just work from home during that time and get stuff done and spend time with our families. Because the rest of the time, we're working Let's all go, the time. Go go go! Yeah, there five, every day. five pillows. Yeah, uh, five. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so I'm curious about this. You know, you, you mentioned this already, kind of. You know, you, how invested you were in this. Like, you're living in a friend's apartment when you, you know, when you were accepted at Y Combinator. You have student loans. Um, you know. You've invested uh, uh, much of your savings in, in the beta. What were your personal stress levels like at that point?
3: You know, it's really interesting. Um, I I guess I, I probably was stressed uh, in a really awesome, excited, healthy way because there's almost no downside, right? Yes, it was not easy and it was very stressful because I was living in somebody's couch and it wasn't mine and I was broke. But I always knew that I could go back to finance because, you know, um, I had amazing connections there and I worked really, really hard and I tried to always work really hard so you can always go back to the things you've done. Um, But I was building something where it was nothing, right? So it was so amazing and it was just me, kind of me against the world. So it was definitely stressful. Like now it's a different level of stress. So I would say when there was nothing, it was definitely um, this Crazy excitement of like, can I figure this out?" And now it's much more like, "Oh my God, I have 45 people who work for me, and I like they depend on, on their salary, and I have investors, and it's a different level of stress, but it's kind of reminding yourself why at the end of the day, you're doing that, uh, because you love what you do, and you're so passionate about that idea in developing small businesses and working with incredible small businesses every day. It's a different type of level of stress. But I would say it was much more excitement rather than stress, whether now or in the beginning.
2: So you launched, when you launched um, ShopTix, mm-hmm. you had 25 stores on the site. Mm-hmm. How? And my understanding is that when the stores come on the site, they have to agree that they're not going to sell their stuff on other sites, other than that they can still maintain their own if they Correct. want. But yes. by and large, they actually use ShopTix as their own. Mm-hmm. Um, so... How did you get the first 25 on, online? Like you kind of, don't you kind of need shops on the site to get shops on the site?
3: Yeah, it's really funny because I actually, I really, really miss that time. So um, <laughs> you could see uh, my path of Soho for the stores that I brought in. I would walk up Bowery, down Prince, and Prince would be the shops, and I would walk down Mott and Elizabeth and Mulberry, and those were the shops. And I would just go with a little paper of the drawing of the idea, and would just sell them on the fact that, like, here I am and I really believe this has to exist and I really want you to be on it and I love your product and I'm super broke but I still gonna shop your store. Um, And just selling them on the idea, and I think at that point, you know, having gone to Harvard has been really helpful because it wasn't just like a random person on the street. You're like, hey, and I've gone to Harvard and Goldman and I understand financials and I really wanna make this a big idea. And making it a no-brainer proposition, right, because there wasn't competitors, okay, they didn't see Amazon as a competitor because they didn't want to dilute their brand. And Etsy was much more for artisans, right? So there wasn't a home for these boutiques. They could have done their own website, but we already knew they couldn't figure it out. So selling them and understand and telling them, hey, this is why I'm doing it and also remember because of the research that I was doing before I already kind of had relationship with some of the stores just from talking to them about their needs Um, so it ended up to be uh, door-to-door sales you know walking to each one and waiting for a sales associate having a presentation I um, when I was Trying to find engineers in Indonesia. I made a presentation and my computer crashed and I lost my presentation. I was so upset Um, But then you know we did the presentation got turned out to be even better in the second try Uh, So just you know selling your dream just like you have to do it every single day no matter what stage of the business you are, right? so
2: um you know, sort of mentioned some of the ups and downs, you know if something crashes, things don't work. Uh, when you finally launched, I, I don't know how how much later, but you you had to fire fire your tech team. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you got down to zero tech people if i if I read it correctly. Yep. Um, and like i'm I'm terrible at firing people, so like when someone But when I let someone go, they're they're ultimately like they've got their arm around me. They're like, it's okay, Jeremy. You know, you're going to be okay. You know, like, um, so I mean, like, I find this like a really crazy emotional toll when when I have to let someone go. But um, you know, like, how did you make how did you make that 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 choice? And like, was it just business? And you know, then you need the right people on the bus. You know, how did you like literally? How do you break the news to your tech team like that they're just the wrong tech team for you?
3: Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's never, ever, ever easy. Um, I think it's always really emotional, because you spend so much time with people and, you know, they become part of you. Um, But I think as a CEO of the business, you always have to make hard choices. And you have to prioritize business. And we just spoke about it above your own desires and needs. Um, And you have to make sure that the team you have in place is the right team for the business. Sometimes the timing doesn't work out on your end, on their end. They may not be the right fit for the business. And I think to me, it always helps to be honest um, and um, just telling them how it is and, and why this is the right decision. And I find that most of the time, people come back to you later and say, you know what, it was the right decision. And I realized that um, later. So, so
2: when you, like, when you, let someone go there's there's sort of some learning that also like you didn't do something right by bringing by bringing the wrong person on board how did you make sure that you got it right the next time what did you what did you change when you hired the next text tech team to build a tech platform
3: um i mean listen i think i'm learning every single day so i don't know if you've ever kind of reached that point of like you know it all i think people are just so different um every time right there's no like This person is just like that person, so I should hire them. Um, I learned that I want hard work, no matter what kind of role, tech, non-tech. People need to be hardworking. They need to be really uh, passionate about their idea, right? Um, So they need to love ShopTix and understand what we do, right? Um, And then they have to be curious all the time. So I think that what I learned is that people who didn't work out didn't fit into those three criterias. And we now have five principles on our wall that support the people that we hire, that are what important for us in them, and do they have those shop tea qualities or not. Um, and so making sure that we evaluate every candidate against those um, things is really, really important to us. So you have to learn those things and kind of move on. And um, 100% as a manager, it's your... Um, you know it's your responsibility to make sure you hire the right people and you you develop the right people you know but people leave for other reasons too and that's you know it's never ever ever easy because you know you hired the person because they're awesome clearly you know
2: the, um, you know, you set out when you started, you set out with a goal to, to bring 750 shops online. Mm-hmm. You started with 25. Are we at 750 at this point? We are over 2,000. Over 2,000, so, I yeah. imagine. Yeah. I was on site <laughs> yesterday. It looked massive. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. We we're over
3: 2,000 stores. We was there a,
2: a victory lap when you got to 750? Did you, what yeah, did you treat yourself to? Yeah, the lap at
3: 750. I got a victory lap at 1,500.
2: <laughs> yeah? Well, okay. um, well, what did you do? What, what did you do to treated celebrate? Treated to a
3: new office. Okay. Uh, <laughs> As we're growing, I think <laughs> that our milestones are our new offices. Okay. Okay. Um, Um, And celebrated with a team, you know, it's it's always um, amazing to see. And I always say, look around. Every single thing we do is because we all work hard. And that's the most amazing thing to look around and say, like, every single person on my team is so passionate about what we do. Together, we achieve all those different milestones. Um, We drink champagne and celebrate. We eat a lot of candy in our office. (laughs) We have um, pink... um, cotton candy, and uh, we had piñata for our birthday, and so we do a lot of celebrating because I think it's important to celebrate those milestones.
2: And And you've rejected... Lots of stores. Have you rejected, Mm -hmm. what's the ratio of accept to reject in in terms of, uh, you know, companies trying to get on the Shoptik platform?
3: Totally. For those that apply to be featured, uh, we reject over 80% of the stores. So a lot of them (laughs) we go after ourselves. Um, So uh, a lot of them we go after ourselves. So you can either apply to be featured or we go after you that we've pre-selected you. Um, and so it's you know the stores that we rejected was definitely never fun, never easy because you're like yes I want to bring you, uh, but it's not going to work. So making those hard choices is really really important to the validity of the idea long term and making them realize that.
2: Is there a defined set of criteria like look we've got this checklist and you you know this is how we evaluate or is it more of a feel thing?
3: It's a feel thing a little bit because it's fashion, right? It's um, uh, You have to really understand it. But the three primar- primary criteria that we go after is, one, how cute the store is, <laughs> um, but how like welcoming and amazing, right? Because we offer a pickup and store option for customers. So the storefronts are actually the extension of ShopTik's brand. So you should be able to hey, I have a date tonight in, in the West Village, I forgot a dress, let me see what's there and pick up and store change there and go to on your date and reserve that the right size is going to be there waiting for you. So that's really important. Because when you go to that boutique, you should feel amazing. And you should feel Oh my god, I found the cutest little shop. Uh, so that's number one criteria and really important to us. Um, number two is for us that the products are unique. Right? so I we spoke a little bit about how we make sure that the boutiques are exclusive to shoptiques platform and they don't sell on others is because if you buy on our site we want you to feel like a million bucks because you uh, know that no other person around you is gonna wear the same outfit uh, and we want to make sure that we are not competing with other big um, you know retailers for that sale because why would you go on shoptiques if you could go buy it on other amazing sites right uh, so we want that unique uh, inventory um,
2: so I'm, I'm not the best shop around. So I just want to make sure I understand what unique means. So unique means like they're they're making it themselves. This is all manufactured in-house for themselves to or sell find in it store locally, or,
1: okay, you
3: know that we have a brand called Pinchiato on the site. They have five stores in New York City, five stores in New York City and in Boston. And they, Make their own stuff in career, and it's amazing stuff. I'm wearing a shirt right now, <laughs> but or we have boutiques, you know, like Babel Fair. They source all around, um, all around the world, unique products that you can't find in other places. And they go and travel and discover those brands that you've never heard of, you know. Um, and then the third criteria for us is kind of price for the quality of the product, right? If you go on our site, um, and the dress is polyester, it's gonna be priced at the right price point for polyester. I think that we don't have big brand to back it up and say, oh, we're going to overcharge people. So the, the prices are just amazing and you can afford to buy everything and um, you're able to really look beautiful and unique without breaking the bank.
0: Play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is smart people should build things. The Venture for America podcast.
2: So is there is there another business lurking somewhere where you can, where you consult these shops to like you know so much about retail you know so much about getting these these companies shop teams ready is there another business out there where you can you know you can consult with these retailers to make them you know, I'm sure you've got enough headaches dealing with your own business, but I feel like getting them shoptiques ready means getting them ready to be better retailers.
3: Um, you know what's really interesting, I think you can probably relate as an entrepreneur, you have to always stay focused, right? Like my team comes up with so many amazing ideas and I always have to be like, okay, let's stay focused. We really have to execute kind of the name of the game right now is surgical execution. Um, so really staying focused on what do we have to accomplish to be where we need to be, to be a dominant player in the world of boutique shopping. Um, and so that's what we are focused on. And I, while I think it's really hard to reject the stores, I think at some point they will start learning from the stores that are successful and are featured on the site themselves those that want to get better Um, but essentially we have a little bit of a consulting within the shop once we accepted you our stores get advice from our you know boutique success team that's what we call it BST we help them try to figure out what is the product they should be shooting what is the product they sells online better than in store right because some like you buy in store, you're not going to buy it online because the sizing is difficult so we definitely do that consulting already for the stores that are on the site Uh, but I don't think we want to get distracted just yet uh, because we have to still execute on so much so I read a
2: Fast Company article uh, which detailed your unique time management skills at the beginning, or even role management techniques. It said that you, early on you would like book time blocks because you didn't have people in different roles. And you'd be like, okay, I'm going to be the CFO for four hours, and then I'm going to be our chief salesperson for three hours, and then I'm going to be our PR person. Um, so now that you have some growth and presumably some some proper functions, how do you manage your time? and? Are you still, I mean, you're still sort of a startup, and you, I mean, you're still a startup, so are you Definitely still resource-constrained? And, you know, which 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 roles have you kept, and which ones have you have you delegated?
3: Well, I think that as a startup, you always have to be a resource-constrained, because if you just have too many people, you're overhired, and at some point you have to let go, right? It's never fun. So I think we are really scrappy. Um, you know, we have posters that say be scrappy and hustle, uh, so really remembering where we came from we just recently doubled the size of the team. In the beginning of the summer, we were 20 people. We are now 45, right? So, like, I think that we came from a really humble beginning, and we work really, really hard, and every single person does. So, we will always be um, resource constrained. But I think it's also important to remember that to do something really well, you really have to focus on it, right? Like, you're gonna think about the problem. If you're just trying to rush through it and you're trying to think about five problems at the same time, you're never gonna just scratch the surface of that problem. Like what I really love and the reason I still employ the same tactics of like blocking in time and I'm gonna say like, I'm just going to think about this particular problem and I wanna make myself think for it, about it for a couple of hours is because I'm able to like, okay, I'm going to scratch the surface. I'm going to write down the most obvious things. And then I force myself to try to think about it deeper and then have my team there and we're going to argue about that or whatever. Um, So I think that, and I also tell my team never check your phone when you're at the office, right? Because you're able to be so much more efficient while you're there and then leave and go home and do other things. Be present in the things that you do at all times. Um, So I do employ the same uh, tactics now, which I schedule time blocks in my calendar and whatever. Now they primarily involve other team members because I would say have, a, have a one, I have a one-on-one with our sales team, I have a one-on-one with our boutique success team, customer service team. Um, and where I spend my time is usually wherever um, there are problems, or we want to implement new things or innovate. Um, so my roles kind of change literally monthly still, or even weekly, depending on what the, needs, the business needs. I always prioritize the needs of the business. And then I always have to think about what's next, right? What's, what a shop takes looks like tomorrow, and how do we innovate at all times?
2: This is the magic word for me, which is scrappy. So, is this is this the is this the the startup that doesn't have the free snacks everywhere and the, you know the what are, what are the other things that that uh, that I don't know lavish vacation policies? I don't. Know, I'm trying to think of, now. Now that I'm thinking about you know ping pong tables and trampolines, or yeah, is this we are uh, that one. you're so, not that one? <laughs> no, no, we are you the are one that one doesn't have okay.
3: anything. Um, the way I talk to my employees always is like, I say, do you want to go public sooner or do you want to just have stuff lying around that? you're not gonna use like my team wants to build their legacy and really like build a business that will be there like as our legacy and we will sit there and say we're here and we've built this amazing business and we did this together right so i think that we make choices together on the lavish things to have. I just got convinced to have a coffee machine and that was a long, (laughs) convincing process. So let me tell you, we are very scrappy. Uh, But then we have still, you know, we have sit-stand desks, right? So that are considered lavish, but they make us so much more productive. So constantly evaluating what do you really need to be efficient and productive and prioritize the business and what do you really don't need, right? like snacks, we tried to have snacks, we were all complaining because we were gaining weight. So we actually prefer not to have snacks. And so that's better for us health-wise.
2: One of my one of my one of my uh, few takeaways from my one year banking uh, it was uh, the the CEO used to walk around and say, "I want to give you cash, not carpets." Yeah, it's like <laughs> I just I, I'm not interested in you having really really nice carpets here. I'd rather just give you the money. And I, I think he actually walked walked the walk with that. I don't I don't or talk the talk. I, I he really I don't think he was joking. You know, and I mm-hmm. I always I always. Um, I always appreciated that, okay, so it's it's almost Halloween. I don't know when this is airing, but uh, let's ask a spooky question here. What keeps you up at night still? what are, What are the dangers that lurk?
3: I think to me, the biggest dangers that I think about always is hiring, right? Like we've built this amazing culture. We've built this amazing culture, and we've built this amazing team and amazing business. And so how do we scale it? how we do we add more people? And maintain what makes us us, right? Makes it fun and makes us crappy and make us hardworking and stay, you know, 9 p.m. on a Sunday in the office laughing how can we preserve that that's so important to me um, and that really keeps me up at night and I think about it. I still interview every single person and my team was like when are you going to stop interviewing like it's hard to schedule time on your calendar I'm like no, no 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 I'm gonna forever interview every single person because culture starts with every single person you bring on board and that's just important to me I want to cannot wait to go to work every day, which I literally can't wait to go to work, you know, and I want to have that um, for as long as I'm at choptiques. and I'm really excited about that, and I'm excited about the team that I'm with, and they push me to be better every single day, and so preserving that is going to be the most important thing for me as we scale the business.
2: And you said earlier that you're not the easiest person to work for, so what does that mean?
3: I'm very honest and very straightforward so I don't know you know how to like sugarcoat it so (laughs) I'll just tell you how I feel at all times and I think that people appreciate that but it also is kind of like a weird shock at first right like oh okay like you just tell me what you think but also they are never surprised about kind of anything right they can ask me any questions um and I will honestly tell them How's how's this interview going? I don't know. Well, I want your answer. Oh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I saw you meant. Uh, how do I think I'm doing? No, I'm doing okay. you're doing funny. good. Oh, great! That's yeah, awesome. I'm having I'm, fun. <laughs> and I
2: know, I know that you're uh, you're going to tell it like it is. Yeah, <laughs> it flew by. I think I think I, I, you know, I've only got one more question, and it relates back to your family. And I and and you know, I'm curious because so many um, you know, uh, there's 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 this tendency, at least I find in immigrant families, um, where you. A lot of immigrants are sort of like, "Hey, I risked it all for you to get here, and I just want you to take the conservative path and become a, uh, a you know a doctor or a lawyer." And we have a family here where you're, you told me earlier your sister just got into med school. Today, yeah. You're not, uh, congratulations. Thank you. uh, and you're you're a, you're an entrepreneur. Did your did your family have any bias? Were they like, "Wow, you know this is too risky. Can't you just at Goldman or um, what was their message?" Definitely, really. Definitely,
3: okay. yeah. So I think it was definitely the hard decision for my family and. hard Hard to accept that I started a business. Really difficult. They thought it was a joke for a long time. Um, I think until they saw the first taxi top on the streets of New York, they still thought that was sitting in a closet somewhere, uh, doing stuff uh, alone. But um, you know, I think that you know, I've supported myself since I was 17 years old. So the decision they knew that the decision was mine to make and that I could survive in the world and I was making my own choices. It wasn't like I was going to them for money. Um, So almost they didn't feel like I... Uh, they could even say anything, but they were definitely shocked when uh, we raised money when I was at Y Combinator. Um, my grandma was really, really upset because she said, now you have debt and they're going to go after you. Um, you know, it's that's a Soviet Union way. Like right. it was anti-debt, don't raise money, don't, you know, really kind of make it yourself. But what I loved is that I had that type of kind of. Um, balance, right, because if you look at the world, it's like everybody's raising and everybody's talking about um, scale, scale, scale. My family was all about building foundation, build a business that will be there tomorrow, build a business that will be here 40 years from now. Um, And not only about business, but family and things and values like that. And having their support system and always knowing that my family was accepting of me, even if I failed, they would still be okay. And maybe knowing that I could go back to Goldman and uh, hopefully they'll take me if I ever go back. <laughs> yeah. But uh, knowing kind of that I've had that experience always made me take bigger risks and actually smart risks, but taking those risks and knowing that I could go back to my family and say, you know, I tried it, uh, always was important. And my grandma was, um, you know, a woman and she was um, she ran a whole uh, bus situation for Kyrgyzstan, for the whole country, all the public buses, so she was bussing around these guys in Soviet Union. So seeing my grandma from early age kind of being in charge and being a leader also allowed me to feel comfortable that I could go um, and build a business and be able to kind of figure it out along the way, because she did, in a place where that was in common, you know. Uh, So I feel so grateful to my family and, and where I came from, because you know, I lived on $100 on four members of my family. And so I think that also allowed me to start my business because I didn't really need much, because I remembered how much I didn't, where I came from. Um, so it, it kind of lets gives you a good perspective, what do you really need in life to be happy, I wanted to be happy through my work, rather than just having nice things because I was working somewhere, you know,
2: Olga, you have a, a really inspiring personal story and an amazing business story. And I, I just really want to thank you for being here and sharing with us. By today.
3: the way, you have an amazing story. We still did not talk about your story. We need to do a whole <laughs> podcast where I'll interview you. Uh, I'm,
2: I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. Uh, thanks so much for being here. And I am uh, I I'm, would be remiss if I didn't say if you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and rate our podcast. It will help us keep going and will help us um, continue to share amazing stories like Olga's. Mm-hmm. Thank thanks so much.